We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, let me invite you to turn in your pew Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Just to kind of bring you up to speed, we are in this, the fifth book of the first five books of the Bible, commonly referred to as the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we've said that the theme of Deuteronomy is this, God has been gracious and faithful in the past, God is gracious and faithful in the present, and God will be gracious and faithful in the future. Just so you understand kind of where we are in the story, Moses is about to reiterate for the nation of Israel the, set, the Ten Commandments for the second time. Now, if you remember, the Ten Commandments take place in the book of Exodus. After God heard his people's cries, he delivers them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, and he gives to them in Mount Sinai a set of rules that we commonly refer to as the Ten Commandments. God has delivered his people, he set them free, and now he's entering into this covenant relationship and he's introducing a set of rules that will guarantee their freedom as they move forward. Now, the way we look at rules and the way we look at commandments is a little bit different. We think of them, rather than being freeing, more in the terms of limiting and binding. We don't think of them as liberation. I'll give you an example. Ted Turner, some of you may know him. A number of years ago, he was speaking to the National Newspaper Association in Atlanta. And he was talking about the Ten Commandments and how they fail to relate to current global problems such as overpopulation and the arms race. And he said this. He said the Ten Commandments are outdated. The rules we're living under are the Ten Commandments. But no one even pays any attention to them because they're too old. When Moses went up on the mountain, there were no nuclear weapons. There was no poverty. Today, the commandments wouldn't go over because nobody likes to be commanded. Commandments are out in the estimation of Ted Turner. And one, I don't know if he realized, but poverty was rampant when Moses went up on the mountain. There weren't any nuclear weapons that we're aware of, but there was poverty like you couldn't imagine. But he says they're outdated. He thinks they're not relative to today. But the reality is the commandments are inevitable. It's not a question of whether or not you're going to be commanded or follow commandments. The question is, of whose commands will you follow? You will be directed and guided by someone or something. Think about this. You know the restaurant Outback Steakhouse? Who knows what their slogan is? No rules, just right. Okay, Outback Steakhouse, you know, they're kind of playing up the thing about the Outback. You know, whatever goes, kind of like what happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas. Outback, no rules, just right. But do this. Imagine that we went to Outback for lunch today. And we opened up the door and we saw there were about 30 people waiting for a table. And we just decided there's no rules. So we just go to the first table that we find and we would force the people sitting there to get up and to leave. And then we decide that, you know what, we want some food and we're kind of hungry. We don't really want to wait. So we just think we'll walk to the kitchen and whatever's fixed on a plate, we'll just choose for ourselves and begin to eat. But even better than that, when the meal comes and they present us with the bill, we just decide, hey, there are no rules here. We're not paying for this. We're just going to leave. Now, do you think that would go over and out back? So even in the place that touts itself as the place with no rules, is the place that still has rules. Every one of us 
have to follow certain rules and commands. So it's not an issue or a question between a life of no rules and a life of some rules, but it's a question of whose rules will we submit ourselves to? Whose rules, whose commands will we follow? God delivers his people from Egypt, and it's an act of his grace. And then a further act of his grace, he continues to deliver them by giving to them the law, the Ten Commandments. But the law will only liberate you and I if we learn to read it properly. So if you would, please stand with me as we read Deuteronomy chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. And while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do no, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates and the male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. I want us to look at two things. First of all, the order of the law. First, God says, I am the Lord. And I want you to notice something. This is our English translation. The word Lord is printed in all capital letters. Some of you are aware of this. We talked about this before. But when you see... The word Lord in all capital letters, that's a special designation so that you know it's a very specific name of God. It's the Old Testament name which we translate Yahweh or pronounce Yahweh. Sometimes it's spoken of as Jehovah. But it's the name that God gave to Moses when he appeared to him in the burning bush. And he said, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to deliver my people. And Moses said, well, if they ask me, what's your name? What should I tell them? And God tells him, he says, tell them I am Yahweh. Or a, a rough English approximation would be, just tell them that I am. 
And it's just a simple declaration. It's the covenant name of God that reminds us that He is the sovereign, eternal God. He is not dependent upon anyone for His existence. He is the Lord. He is God. Now this Lord, this covenant God, introduces the Ten Commandments in verse 6 this way. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, God enters into a relationship with Israel first by delivering or saving them from their bondage to Pharaoh. And he then gives the law to the people with whom he has a relationship. To say it differently, it could be said like this. God's law expresses the relationship that already exists rather than being the foundation for creating that relationship. The Ten Commandments do not bring you and I into a relationship with the living God, but they rather come from His heart of love towards His people that He wants to provide, protect, and care for. So if we don't read God's law that way, if we don't read it through the lens of God's grace, then what happens is we'll miss what God is trying to say, what God is doing. The law is about relationship. This is the God who revealed himself in covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of Israel. That phrase, I am the Lord your God, is a phrase that's going to be repeated over 200 times in the book of Deuteronomy. He gives us the law because he's already created or established this relationship. He gives us the law so that we might know more about him. We also might know more about ourselves. Now, the first of the Ten Commandments is the most important because it establishes this level of relationship between God, Yahweh, the eternal sovereign one, and his covenant people that he is called by name. With the resulting claims that God has upon us, you shall have no other gods before me. What God is saying is that our ultimate loyalty with every single relationship is first and foremost to him. To make anything, to make anyone more ultimate, to place that above or beyond, that is a violation of this commandment. This is the highest relationship. You could think it is the, the center of kind of like a hub and spoke. And all relationships flow out of this one. It takes priority over a marriage. It takes priority over a relationship between a parent and a child. It takes priority over any other relationship between an employer and employee, between the government and its citizens. It is the foundational relationship. He says, I am the Lord your God. And because he is the Lord our God, he makes certain claims upon his people. And we're to hear and we're to obey. Last week we said we listen and we love. So there's a sense in which obedience is characteristic of every single relationship. Even what you might consider the most casual of relationships involve certain kinds of claims. If you buy an airline ticket, you establish a relationship with a specific airline. You establish a relationship with the specific airport uh, um, entities when you go there. You, you can't just pull up and leave your car at the front of the airport and walk inside and toss the keys to a, uh, you know, a, a police officer say, hey, you know what, I'll be here next week to pick that up, have it clean and washed and ready for me. They will not allow you to do that. You don't just get to go in and walk right up to your plane and say, you know what, I know we're supposed to leave in another two hours, but uh, I think I just want to go ahead and board the plane and have you fire this baby up and take me to San Diego. You don't get to do that. So you have to go through certain procedures because there's a relationship, and that relationship has certain requirements. 
You board the plane in a certain order. Think about a marital relationship. It places even more claims upon us. A husband and wife, it's not wise for them to set their own schedule. I can speak from experience. It's not wise for them to spend money however they want or to go on vacation independently apart from their spouse or their family. There are numerous limitations that we agree to in a covenant between a husband and a wife. But those, those couples that are happily married, they, they gladly, joyfully endure these limitations because of what the relationship provides. Every single relationship has with it the condition of obedience. Our relationship with God has obedience at its heart and its expression of our love for God. But it flows, first and foremost, out of his love for us. It's not the means for establishing this relationship. And so if we get that backwards, what happens is rather than delighting in God's law the way David does, we see it as something to be delivered from. One of the reasons why we don't delight in God's law is that we don't read it in the proper order. We don't read that God has already established this relationship and as a result of that relationship, now he gives to us his law so that we can follow. We don't receive the law as an expression of a God who loves his people and rather than bringing delight, what it does is it puts a heavy burden on us. One pastor, he tells the story of misinterpreting someone's intentions in a communication this way. He says, a couple of years ago, an elder in his church responded to an email that he had sent out to the session. He said, I had made, uh, made some request of our session, and this one particular elder uh, composed an email in response. But his email was all in red letters and all capitalized. And so the pastor said, I read his remarks as if they were expressed with a raised, angry voice. And so in an attempt to avoid disunity, I called this brother to talk things through with him. And when I did so, I found out that he had mistakenly used red for his font and capitalized everything. He said the words of his email when I read them again and I removed the assumption of his anger and instead replaced it with his kindness and his care. It took on a completely different meaning. The same thing happens to you and me when we read God's word, God's law out of order. We don't hear God's law correctly because we think that God's angry and he's laying down his requirements and the bar has been set and we have to live up to that bar in order for him to bless us. But instead we read it as a coming from a loving father who has shown his love through Jesus and we obey it because he knows what's best for us and we want to express that relationship. God's laws are given to his people who are already in a relationship with him. And so our motive for obedience is not so that God would love us, not so that we could twist his arm and he'd be obligated to bless us. But our motive for obedience comes from knowing that he already does love us in Jesus. And that he's already given to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, Peter says. So when you read the word of God, specifically when you read the law of God, read it through the lens of a father. Who loves you. Who wants what's best for you. The way of application. Let me mention two things. If you're going to read the law of God. It needs to be grounded in the gospel. What do I mean by this? When you read the law. And you start to feel like it's a burden. Rather than delight. Think this. Thank you God. That you will not love me any more. Than you already do. If I keep this commandment. And that you won't love me any less. Than you already do. If I fail miserably. To keep it. Because it's the blood of Christ that pardons and cleanses us and makes us acceptable to God. 
If you keep the law perfectly, God will not love you anymore. And if you fail in the law, God will not love you any less. His love is grounded in the objective reality of Christ's death and resurrection, His atoning and substitutionary sacrifice for you. That's why God loves you. Not because you're good at keeping the law and doing what He says. So God loves you. So read it that way. And second, if you read the law, if you read through the Bible, through the Scriptures, and you read something and you think, you know what, I can do that. That's not really that big a deal. Then I think you have not read God's Word correctly. Keeping the law involves far more than you and I are capable of. The Ten Commandments, specifically, Jesus talks about what it means to keep the law in His Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you know what you've read, or you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And he goes on to say, but if you harbor anger in your heart, then you're guilty of violating that command. You've heard, thou shalt not commit adultery. But if you've looked upon a woman with lust in your heart, then you've broken the commandment. Because see, the commandments, while they focus on external behaviors and activities, they're really primarily concerned with internal heart realities. So it's quite possible to keep all the commandments externally, but break every single one of them in your heart. So if you read something and you think, you know what, I can, that's really not a big deal. I got this. I'm, on, I'm good, Jesus. Then you should respond by repenting and saying this. There's no way that I could do this without your Spirit's power at work in me. But I believe, God, that nothing is impossible for you, even changing my heart. So I'm going to depend on you to help me obey. That's what it means to read the law through the lens of the gospel. Second, there's the order of the law, and then there's the blessing of the law. Now, all throughout the Bible, the law is seen and is referred to as a good gift from God. Let me point out a couple of ways that this takes place. One, the law does limit us, but it limits us in a way that brings freedom. One of the reasons you and I don't like commands is that we really do believe that the commands of God are there to limit us in some kind of way. If someone tells us not to tell lies, then the result is clearly they're taking the option of lying off the table. And while it is true that God's law does limit us from certain kinds of behavior, it should be recognized that the way it limits us is a way that frees us the same way the tracks on a train free it to pursue its destination. God defines certain areas in which human lives are designed to flourish and to prosper. Certain arenas in which his people are to engage in so that they can be all that he longs for them to be. If a train is dislodged from its tracks... People get hurt, and the train is no longer capable of doing what it was designed to do. So God's law, yes, it is limiting, but it's limiting in a way that brings freedom. God calls himself the Lord your God, and then he refers to his deliverance out of the house of slavery. See, that's the theme of the Bible, is that God comes to deliver his people. In the book of Exodus, it's from their slavery in Egypt. But we know that that was just a type or picture of our bondage and slave to sin. So God sets his people free. He delivers them from the bondage, not so that they can be autonomous individuals doing whatever it is, but he delivers them from bondage and the Pharaoh so that they can now serve him. God delivers his people from bondage and makes them free to serve him. And his law furthers their freedom. Now, this sounds almost impossible to our modern, individualistic Western ears. Freedom for us is the ability or the opportunity to do whatever it is that we want. So how can a law bring freedom when it brings limitations? 
The law limits us when it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Limitations are introduced when it says that sexual intimacy is defined only in the covenant of marriage between one man and woman. Sexual intimacy becomes limited to the spouse whom we made a covenant and a promise and a lifelong commitment to. But freedom in American terms is I should be able to experience sexuality any way that I deem fit. That runs contrary to the word of God. The biblical view of freedom challenges our American understanding of what freedom means. So who will we submit to? See, everyone's going to follow a law. The American freedom law says whatever you desire in your heart, that's what you pursue. And God says if you really want to flourish and prosper, then you'll maintain faithfulness in your marriage. There's two things about biblical view of freedom. Freedom is not without any boundaries. We've identified some of these limitations. But it is freedom from bondage. Now, early in the book, we hear of the harsh service that God's people had to provide to their Egyptian taskmasters. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he speaks to him in Exodus chapter 7. He says, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Now, what's interesting is this idea of the word serve is the same in both cases. They're either going to serve Egyptian taskmasters or they're going to serve the Lord, their God. Life is defined with a particular set of boundaries. God says, a particular set of boundaries I'm giving you because I love you and I've established this relationship and I want you to flourish and I want you to represent my glory to the nations around you. So he's saying, I'm calling you to freedom, but you have to to trust me and obey me that what I'm saying will bring freedom. So the word of God becomes the path to our blessing. It's the way that we experience all of the fullness of God's presence and power, favor in our life. But the the law also serves like a mirror. One of the functions of the law is to reflect not only the way to flourishing, but reflects the character and the beauty of God himself. It shows to us the righteousness of God. Think about it. When you hold a mirror, think of a handheld mirror, it reflects back whoever or whatever is looking into it. So if you hold the mirror, the law of God, up to God, what you see is his righteousness. You see his beauty. You see his holiness. It tells us what our God is like. When he says, thou shalt not lie, the reason is, is when we look through the mirror of the law, it's because he's a God of truth. And that's why he commands us to be a people of truth. When he commands us not to commit adultery and we hold up the law to the character of God, it's because he's a faithful God, even when you and I are faithless people. And on and on, the law is a perfect reflection of who God is, of his goodness and his beauty and his purity. But on the other hand, if we flip the mirror around and we look at ourselves, it shows us an altogether different story. We see all the ways in which we fail to live up to the Ten Commandments. All the ways in which you and I fail to look like Jesus, how we fail to match his glorious standard. When we read the Ten Commandments, it shows us all the ways that we have violated God's laws. All the ways that we have failed. All the other gods that we've placed before Him. Recreation, comfort, convenience, money, security. All of those things that we've placed in front of God so that we could have what we wanted. 
John Calvin, the great reformer, he wrote that the law shows God's righteousness. That is the righteousness alone acceptable to God. And so it does this. It warns and informs, it convicts, and lastly, it condemns every single man of his own unrighteousness. But why? Why would God continually confront us? I mean, it seems like that would be so depressing and so difficult to live under. It's because God has our best interest at heart. When we start talking about the Ten Commandments, there's a temptation to think, I'll just keep them all. I'll strive really hard and I'll, I'll just double down on my efforts and I'll keep all the rules and then God will love me and bless me. But the law of God is there to hold up the mirror to our face and say, no matter how hard you try, you're never capable of living up to the standard. We do not earn our place with God by keeping the rules. We are dependent upon His grace that comes through faith in Christ alone, through the gospel. So the law, when we look at it through the mirror of God's Word, it drives us to Jesus. If you wake up in the morning and you walk in and you put your contacts in and you look up and in the mirror you see you've got a big smudge on your head. You don't lean over in the mirror and try to wipe it off, do you? Now see, the mirror is there to identify the problem. And to drive you to the solution. What you do is you get a little soap in your hands, you lather it up, and then you wipe it on your forehead, and then you rinse it off. The law drives us to Jesus. It highlights our needs so that we'll be a broken people and who cast ourselves wholly and completely on Jesus. Donald Gray Barnhouse explained it like this. He said, the law of God's like a mirror. It's not to reveal when your face is dirty, but the purpose is to show you when you need to be cleaned. And when you look in the mirror and you see that you're dirty... You wash. The purpose of the mirror is to drive you to the water. And the purpose of the law is to drive us to Christ. So this morning I want to invite you to repent of any way of reading the law that has been in error. Maybe you read the law of God and you come to a, an image or an idea of a cruel God. A God who says that you have to live exactly like this and keep all these conditions before I'll have any kind of relationship with you. As opposed to reading as the expression of a God who already loves you and he's shown you the full extent of that love by sending Christ to die on the cross while you were a sinner, while I was a sinner. To begin reading the word of God, the law of God, as a way to receive the love of God through Jesus. And so if you don't know Christ, and you haven't received him as the ultimate treasure, then you're not going to be able to read the law of God correctly. So the first step is to believe. Just cast yourself wholly and completely upon the grace of God that's been revealed in Jesus. And second, once you start reading the word of God correctly and you see it as God's intention for a life of your blessing and freedom and flourishing, then repent of all your areas of disobedience. Repent of any way in which you violated these commandments. Repent of all the ways that you have taken the Lord's name in vain. The way that you've been dishonest with others. Maybe you've spoken ill against another by gossiping or repeating rumors. Maybe you've borne false witness against your neighbor or co-worker. All the ways that you violated the commands, repent of those and run to Jesus. And to find that God is gracious and merciful. And that He is faithful even when you... And I are faithless. Let's pray.